Andrea, uh, pleased to meet you. Um, I believe you're in South Africa at the moment, but work mainly in Mozambique? I do. I've been in Africa for 20 years now. Um, I mainly work in southern Mozambique in the province of Inyapon, um, but I happen to be uh, in South Africa at the moment. How is it there right now? Well, it's pretty wet, I have to say. We've had a, it's La Nina year for us, and uh, we've just come off the back of three cyclones. Um, and so we've uh, had a lot of wind and a lot of rain this season, so it's kind of a ooey-gooey, slippery kind of situation here. Gosh, is, is that climate change? Is, 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 it is. It's yeah. real. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, uh, extraordinary. It was a, I, I did hear on the news they were talking about the, the big freeze in Texas, and uh, one of their top politicians said, well, this isn't climate change. And I thought, you know, the, the earth should be getting hotter. They shouldn't be having freezes. Uh, I, I yeah, that's remember. definitely one of the misconceptions that everyone thinks climate change means everything's just going to get warmer. But, but that's actually not, if you listen, if climate change, the climate is changing. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's getting hotter or colder everywhere, but it's just changing. And one of the things that we're just experiencing is dramatic uh, weather shifts um, and as far as our research goes, that means that where things used to be very predictable, now things are very unpredictable and it's difficult for us scientists to, um, you know, plan ahead or even expect things because everything's all over the place now. Yeah, sure. I couldn't believe I was hearing what, what I heard. Um, can we just start with um, the Marine Megafauna Foundation, of which you're a co-founder? Could you just give it a uh, give us a bit of background on that and tell us what it is and what it does? Sure. I mean, I was working in, in, in southern Mozambique. I just finished my PhD and I was kind of looking for a job. Um, and I had offers from several different uh, NGOs and um, some universities. And I guess I wasn't finding what I was looking for. And I really wanted to be a full time field researcher, meaning that I wanted to be in the field 365 days a year. Um, and I wanted to be working both with the animals on a regular basis and also with the communities in the areas that I was concerned about. And I couldn't find any jobs like that. And so one of my best friends and I were kind of lamenting the fact that, you know, being a marine biologist is difficult because obviously when you finish your studies, you're almost forced into this academic track where you spend all your time in the office and then only go into the field for, you know, moments of the year. Um, and we decided like, well, maybe it doesn't have to be like that. Maybe we can create an organization um, where uh, one of our main focuses is to be in the field 365 days a year and be working with local communities on a regular basis, trying to affect change. So when we decided what we wanted to do, um, our idea was, well, we, we really want to focus on like threatened marine megafauna species, because those are oftentimes the ones that are most at risk. So me megafauna are really just large and often charismatic, iconic marine animals, things like whale sharks or manta rays or dugongs or, uh, you know, some of the whales and, and dolphins. Um, and so for us, we wanted to focus on the ones that are, are critically threatened in some way. So whether they're endangered or whether they are suspected to be threatened, but they're data deficient. And we wanted to focus on those animals and see if we could... Um, help with their conservation. And in Africa, you know, there's a precedent for that. You know, a lot of the, the big terrestrial megafauna like lions and, and elephants and rhinos and things um, have been protected off the back of ecotourism, um, off the back of uh, like their endangered status here. And they've created these huge parks 
to try and protect them. And we thought, well, why can't we do the same thing in the ocean in Africa? Why can't we create these big spaces for these endangered marine animals? Um, and that was our, our idea. So we created the Marine Megafauna Foundation. And that's kind of what we're busy doing right now, trying to create very large scale protected areas in the most important places for these um, threatened marine animals. And how is that going? Well, it's, it's going surprisingly well. I mean, I, I, it is difficult, but I also am proud to say that things, things are happening faster than I would have imagined. Um, so in southern Mozambique, we have been here for 20 years, and I imagined after maybe 40 years of work, we would be able to develop some of these big protective areas. But we've actually accomplished what we've set out to do in, in about half the amount of time than we suspected. Um, so there is some momentum now for, for conservation globally uh, for the ocean, which I'm really excited about. I'm, I'm glad to see that people are taking ocean conservation so seriously these days. And people have, a, I think, a greater respect for the fact that the ocean plays such a vital role in the health of the planet um, and that we've been ignoring it for a long time because we don't really, I think the biggest issue is that people don't see what's underneath the surface of the ocean um, in the same way they see like terrestrial landscapes um, they, can, they can see the problems a lot more clearly. And so the ocean has always lagged behind terrestrial conservation. But I'm excited to see that it's catching up and people are taking a much more keen interest in marine conservation these days. Yeah, you've almost answered my, my next question, which was... Sorry. It, <laughs> it's all right. Um, it kind of headed us in the right direction, really. Uh, if it, it's just a piece on, on your website. Um, I'll just read it. It's just a line. Uh, our own survival is dependent on our oceans being healthy and full of life, yet only 4% is currently protected. It's a thing that a lot of people just can't grasp, that a healthy ocean means a healthy planet, means healthy human beings. Can you expand on that uh, a, a little for us? Sure, and we touched on that at the very beginning of the call as well, which is just that you know, as we see global weather pa patterns changing, a lot of that has to do with the ocean. The ocean really dictates our weather around, around the globe, our rainfall, like the wind, um, even things like, um, you know, how the water is circulated uh, around the planet. I mean, that, that all, all, all of the, 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 the climate on the planet is kind of dictated really by the oceans. Um, and, and when you think about, um, I mean, I know that a lot of people enjoy eating fish, but they probably don't realize that, you know, marine, marine life um, really is supporting the planet, especially a lot of the more impoverished countries in the world, some of the developing countries of the world. I mean, they're very, very much dependent on the ocean. And so just for the food security issues, we need a healthy ocean because if the ocean starts dying, people are going to not have enough food to eat. Um, and so for so many different reasons, I think people are starting to understand that we are really, really dependent on, on healthy oceans. Um, and, um, and we have been neglecting it and the ocean is dying all over the planet. I mean, it doesn't take much. You just have to look at a few studies to see that like, across the board, uh, we just published a study in Nature um, a couple of weeks ago that showed an incredible decline in pelagic sharks um, over the last half a century. Um, and almost every single scientific study out there on oceans is just showing the same trends. I mean, just populations of animals, um, the health of corals, everything is on the decline uh, in the ocean at the moment. Um, there's not very many positive stories, um, except in the areas where they're being protected properly. So I think we really need to start understanding that like the oceans are in trouble and we need to actually really work towards uh, conserving them as fast as we can.
Yeah, absolutely, 100% um, agree. Are there any signs at all of, of that trend turning in your sphere? Well, in protected areas, we, we've seen a lot of positive uh, evidence um, that if you leave the ocean to its own devices, if you can just protect it, um, it can actually rebound quite quickly. Uh, that's the beautiful thing about the ocean is it has a real resilience to it. it. It has the ability to bounce back quickly if you leave it alone. And that's the idea behind creating these large-scale um, marine protected areas in very specific places around the world that we're hoping that we can regenerate a lot of the life. We're hoping that we can protect that food security that we need. Uh, we're hoping that we can turn things around by just creating enough um, marine protected areas in the places that they're needed. Um, you know, really key biodiversity areas, areas of critical importance. Um, and I think from the initial results we're getting back, it's pretty hopeful that if, if, if we can protect these areas, that the ocean is going to help, you know, help itself come back just naturally. Yeah. I believe one of, one of your favorite topics to be working on is manta rays. Um, yeah. What, why, why manta rays? Well, why not? No, why I'm not, actually, I was actually, I was actually a, a shark specialist. Um, and, and my whole life, I've been absolutely infatuated with sharks ever since I was about five years old. That's all I ever wanted to be. Um, but uh, I was, I've been, I was volunteering and I have been for many, many, many years now for the IUCN uh, doing red list assessments um, to try and trying trying to uh, get a better understanding of what shark species are, are endangered and, um, and kind of really assess their conservation status better. And one of the species I got slid across my desk a number of years ago, 20 years ago, was mantas. Um, and, it, and, and doing that assessment, I realized that no one was studying them and they were in a lot of trouble, but we didn't really have enough information to assess them properly and we, we didn't have enough information to protect them properly. Um, and I was just in Africa and I stumbled upon a huge, very healthy population of mantas in Mozambique. And I thought, well, you know, why not me? You know, why can't I study these? You know, why do I always have to be frustrated that there's an animal out there that's not being studied? Why don't I take it upon myself to study them? But honestly, within six months of working with them, I fell head over heels in love with them. And I, I haven't really wanted to study anything else. I am studying other animals now, but it's, it's definitely my favorite animal. And it's something that um, is such a pleasure to work on. And I think the reason that they're so interesting um, is just that they are as, they are quite an intelligent species and they're one that's very much um, enjoys interactions with humans, which is quite rare. Um, and so it makes working on them really easy and it makes working on them exciting because they want to engage with you. Um, so it's a, it's, a, it's a very different experience as a shark researcher because normally everything's swimming away from you. But with mantas, they actually swim towards you and they want to help you do the work. <laughs> it's pretty cool. <laughs> yes, it'd be great to think that was true. I mean, you know, but that communi that communication. Oh, you're right, it's still there. Yeah, was that? Yeah, your yeah sorry. Was that your dog? Yeah, that was, a, that was a dog. That was a yeah. dog. Apologies for that. <laughs> no worries. So I was going to ask you about the temperament of mantas. As you're saying, they I, I've never seen any evidence of an aggressive manta uh, towards people. But is it actually interest or is it just, you know, I don't care they're there, is it interest in the bubbles? No, it's for sure interest. Yeah, it's for sure interest. And, and that, was a, that was definitely an early question of mine. Is it just that they have a, a high tolerance for us? Like, 
they don't mind us being around, but they don't actually care. Um, but that's not the case. I mean, we, we actually see mantas um, very specifically, um, you know, trying to, you know, come in to solicit encounters, if, if you will. So, you know, they're very curious by nature. And, and one of the things that we've been studying recently is just how social they are. Um, we had a paper come out last year. One of my PhD students is doing a really great job in, in, in looking at the, um, the social networking of mantas. So he's been able to demonstrate that uh, manta rays um, specifically interact with, with specific individuals in like a in like a in like a society almost like we live you know they they visit certain areas um with certain individuals kind of like we would go to our favorite coffee shops with our friends if you will so they they specifically spend time with certain individuals they seem to have a social structure um and they they really do seem to um kind of seek out humans because i think they realize that that we're not threatening um, and that we're also highly intelligent and they really are curious. They like to interact with us. It's not about just them coming in, in and having a look. They, you know, sometimes matches will hang out with us for two, three hours at a time, just completely interacting with us. It's, it's, it's unlike any other fish that I've ever spent time with underwater. They are very, very unusual animals. That must be quite stunning. Um, what a wonderful mm -hmm. feeling just to spend so long with, with such a, magnificent animal mm. yeah it is really special mm, my goodness um, in terms of research and things do you do tagging or anything like that yeah i mean sorry well that's one of the benefits of um studying an animal i mean now there's plenty of people that study mantis but when i began really we were kind of forging all this new ground and um you have the ability to study anything when you're the first to study it so um you know we kind of initially started looking at you know, how do you tell the difference between mantas and, and kind of realize that they have these unique spot patterns on them and you can ID them. So that allowed us to um, understand how large populations were because you could actually count individuals over time. And then we thought, okay, now we know about more about how large the populations are, but we only see them during the day for a few hours at a time. Where do they go? So then you start putting tags on them, different kinds of tags, some of them acoustic tags, sometimes satellite tags. And all of those tags give you a different information and it gives you a better idea of what their daily habits are like. But you can follow these animals around for like a year, um, you know, underwater uh, with these tags and, and kind of determine what habitats they prefer, how far they travel, how deep they dive. So to give you an example, like the, the, the first time I put some of the satellite tags on, on giant mantas, I didn't really know what to expect. But overnight when those tags came off, uh, it changed our uh, understanding of them being kind of a surface dwelling animal to an animal that spends a lot of time offshore and an animal that's capable of di diving into like the bathy pelagic parts of our ocean, like well over a thousand meters from the surface. And so all of a sudden you're like, oh my goodness, like we don't know anything about these animals. Like, why are they diving so deep? Why are they going so far offshore? Like, what are they doing? And then that leads you to studying things like their feeding ecology. You know, why are they doing these things? Or what are they eating? So then you start to do studies about what they're eating and it just, goes you know it's just that natural progression like things organically kind of you get these new questions and then you can answer it and I just feel really lucky to be living in an age where we have the the cool technology and innovation happening where we can actually ask questions with amazing technology and get answers back um it's a very cool time to be a scientist right now yes absolutely I, I throughout my career especially early career uh I've 
always been so frustrated because I wanted to do exactly what you're doing, not in terms of research, but in terms of filming. You know, the thought of having the technology to do this stuff. Mm. Uh, and it was just on the cusp, you know, it was, it was like starting to appear, but it, but it, mm. it never really succeeded. It's funny that you mentioned that because my husband, you know, many years ago, I mean, he started out with like GoPros, you know, and he was shooting with GoPros and filming all that we were doing underwater. And now he's shooting on, on, on a, you know, a, a red, you know, in 8K. And, and we can see in such high resolution, I can see better on his camera and the footage that he gets than I can see with my own eyes. Um, and just the way that technology is just advancing so quickly. Um, but it's really a great time to be, um, you know, capturing footage or doing research because that technology is just allowing us to, to answer questions so much quicker and so much better than we ever have before. So out of all those questions that um, you've been asking and, and looking at through, through technology and, and your own observations, is, is there one really amazing question that's been answered or that, or that you're getting close to the answers to? Well, yeah. I mean, I, would, I thought you were going to ask, is there a question I haven't been able to answer? And ah, there is one of those that's as well. <laughs> uh, but, but I think for me, what was unexpected in my career, I mean, I, I just told you about something else. Un well, I didn't expect those results about these animals being so incredibly athletic and uh, traveling so far or diving so deep or being in such harsh environments. I didn't expect any of that. But what I really didn't expect when I started down this um, line of work is for there to be more than one species of manta. I mean, it was just a given, just like whale sharks when I started, that there was just one global species. Um, so it was quite shocking to me when I started working on mantas, and I quite immediately recognized that there was two species of mantas. And then as I finished that work, um, about 10 years it took me to, to describe that, that second species of manta, as I finished that work, I realized there was a third species in the Atlantic, um, which we're just ho hopefully wrapping up this year. Um, and that would have also taken me 10 years to describe. And so I feel like we're done now, but that was definitely something that was, a, was an issue that I didn't even expect that blindsided us completely. And it's taken 20 years to kind of solve all of it, but I think we have eventually. Yeah, we've, I think, we're, I think we're, we got there eventually. Fantastic, wow. In terms of numbers, uh, are mantas globally breeding successfully? Uh, is there a, I know it's, it's difficult to quantify that because of fishing and finning, um, etc. But for example, your, your area, which is protected, I believe, in Mozambique, is that right? Just protected, like Just. as in like, two months ago. <laughs> uh, ah, okay. Um, so how's the population doing there? How's the breeding coming out? So... Yeah, so I guess the, the short answer to your question would be that in some areas they're doing well and in other, others they're doing very, very poorly. And that goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning, uh, where in protected areas, mantas seem to be thriving. So in places like the Maldives or even in Indonesia now, I mean, populations, Hawaii, uh, populations seem to be stable, if not maybe even increasing in some areas and doing very, very well. Um, and that's because they're in protected areas where, you know, they're being managed properly. In areas where they're not, because um, there's like a global trade in their body parts still. Um, and it's just like the fin, it's just like the fin, um, fin trade, but it's for their, their gill plates. Um, they're not doing well. So, you know, in many, 
in many places around the world, we've seen upwards of 90% decline in their populations. And in my own population in Mozambique, we've lost over 95% uh, of, the, of the individuals in the country over the last 20 years. So they're obviously doing terrible here. But in response, finally, the Mozambican government has protected them just now. And hopefully what we'll be able to see over the next 20 years is that population rebuilding. And if we can actually see that, then we know that the protected areas and, and, and all of these um, marine, marine seascapes and, and conservation areas that they're building, it's working. And that will hopefully give us more incentive to create more of them around the world is that, you know, when you can see the numbers crashing and then, then you can see the numbers um, rebuilding, it shows you that you're on the right track. So, so what is the number in your area at the moment? Well, and, you know, I think for us, we knew that we had, you know, several thousand mantas living here, and um, it's by far the largest population that has been identified in Africa. Um, but like I said, we've, we've had a like 95% decline in sighting records over the last 15 years. So it's hard for us to say exactly how many individuals there are, but we're talking hundreds now rather than the thousands that we used to have. Uh. It's so tragic, so tragic. Mm. Do you get a lot of tourists um, coming to see the mantas? Yeah, I mean, much more so in other places. Mozambique is incredibly remote. It really is one of those places for, you know, intrepid explorers and, you know, people that like to get off the beaten track. I mean, we're no Maldives or Hawaii. It's easier to see mantas in other places, for sure. Um, but for those who like to explore and like to uh, get out there, I think it's a wonderful place to come. And in the last 20 years, we've had a huge pickup in tourism. Of course, now that there's been a huge decline in our population here, the response is that tourists would rather go elsewhere where they can see more mantas. And I think that has helped us, that singular point has helped us to get the mantis protected because if you're a tourist you'd rather go to the Maldives where the population is healthy and you can see more than come to Mozambique where you might not see as many um, and so that's what dictates tourism and, and Mozambique can see that now and so they're trying to you know rebuild that manta population and rebuild the tourism um, here in the country around mantas so um, yeah I mean I think they didn't know what they had until they lost it and once they lost it they realized that you know Tourism is a huge, can be a huge, you know, incentive to bring people to their country and spend money and, and they need to really take care of the environment so that people want to continue to come. Yeah, <laughs> any port in a storm, as they say, it, uh, yeah. that's kind of the, the global mantra, isn't it? Tourism governs how the, how the natural world survives, which is uh, yeah. uh, an interesting concept, really. Um, if people want to help out with, or pick, can people help out with uh, research or ma mantabrate research globally, anywhere, what's, what can they do? What's, what's, how do they start? What's, what can they do? Well, I've definitely, personally, I've always been on a personal quest um, to make research more accessible to people. And I think that's because I wanted to be a researcher since I was five, you know, and when I was 12 and I got certified to dive, all I wanted to do was help out. And I always felt like there was this disconnect between just traditional, you know, scuba divers, you know, just like a normal uh, scuba diver and scientists. I kind of, you know, always wanted to get involved, but kind of felt like the scientist did the science and, and, and you as a diver couldn't really get involved. Or if you could, you were giving data into a black hole and you never knew what would happen to it. You never knew 
how, how your contributions made a difference. So I have made a point uh, in my own career of trying to make science more accessible to people and, and more transparent. Um, so just on the, on the, on the real research side of things, we um, develop like a global database for mantas. It's called Mantamatcher. And once we realize that you can tell different mantas, sorry, dogs again. Once we determined that you could tell different mantas apart, uh, we developed a, an algorithm, much like the FBI fingerprint, you know, kind of algorithm, to be able to, um, you know, automatically differentiate between mantas, and and then we put it online. So any any diver anywhere in the world, like let's say you're in the Maldives, you can take a picture of a manta, you can upload it to Manta Matcher, it can cross check it against all of the mantas in the world, tell you if that manta has been seen before, and if it has, it'll give you the whole history of the times it's been seen. If it hasn't, then you get to, you know, put, put a new record of a manta in. And then every single time that manta is seen in the future, you're connected to that animal now. So it'll send you a sightings, you know, record that your manta has been seen now here and there. So it kind of just is a, is a way to connect people to, to the animals and connect people to the research that's going on. And then, you know, as scientists, we're becoming much more transparent when we publish things things are more accessible now. People are now being able to be a part of the results and, and find out what the findings are from all of the work that we're doing. So I think that's a, a, a way to be able to connect and also make people more empathetic about the cause, but also about how difficult it is to be a researcher. Most people that are connecting with us is like, wow, this stuff you're doing is really hard. And it's, it is, it's really hard to study animals underwater. Um, and then for people that want to do even more than that, we've tried to make, um, like citizen science more accessible for people so that people can join expeditions and kind of get to see what it's like to, to go out and do research, you know, have a hand on it, play a role um, on that expedition with us. Um, so we've created opportunities like that as well. So, I mean, yes, when I was, when I was young, the only way that you could connect with an organization is to give money. And of course, all of the organizations allow you to be members and, you know, read our, our online magazines and things like that. But we're actually trying to make it so that people can get more directly involved because I think through getting directly involved, you, you have a stake in, in the research and conservation yourself and, and yeah. And then you're connected to it for life. Yeah, indeed. Absolutely. It, um, yeah, you got, you're quite right. Remember uh, also myself as a young person, the only way I could get involved other than filming or something and joining a, a little group was money, you know, do yeah. once and do next. And then you'd never quite sure where the money was going. So Absolutely not. Mm. I'll tell you another, I tell you another way that people are connecting. And I really like to see this too, is that there's a, there's a couple of, um, of apps and uh, things that are coming out now. And I'm a part of one called Milky Wire where you can follow researchers. You can support us on there financially too, but you don't have to. But you can follow us every day as well um, in the field, you know, in a way where when I was young, I had heroes like Sylvia Earle or Eugenie Clark, uh, people like that. And I always wanted to know what they were doing. I always wanted to know what it was like to be in the field and what they were doing every single day. And there was zero way for you to find it. You could, write, you could read their book and that was it. And now with all these cool apps, you can really connect with researchers around the world on a day-to-day -day basis. You can see exactly what my field team is doing, you know, three, four, five times a week um, and really get a behind the scenes kind of um, understanding of what it's like to be a field researcher. And then also some people, 
you know, it helps them decide if that's what they want to do with their career. And this is the stuff that was just never available to me when I was younger, but I always wanted it. So I'm really excited to be a part of these initiatives because I remember how hard it was not to be able to connect with these people when I was younger. And I feel very privileged that it's different now and that I can connect with people through these, you know, types of, you know, online platforms like today. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Absolutely. Andrea, it's been lovely talking to you. Um, just one thing. Um, how do mantas fit in the world? I mean, what would actually happen now if I click my fingers and all the mantas were to disappear? How would things change? Well, the world would be a far lesser place without mantas just in general. Um, of course. But you're, yeah. quite, you're quite right. Um, I do get asked that question sometimes, and it is a difficult question to answer because there are some species that, you know, keystone species or animals that, that really have huge ecosystem effects if they're removed. Things like top predators, uh, whether on the land or in the ocean, um, they can have you know, catastrophic effects on, on ecosystems if they're removed. Other animals um, you know, that, are, that are not maybe top predators, things like mantas or things like rhinos, maybe you click your fingers and mantas or rhinos or things like elephants go away and it doesn't seem to have as big of an impact. Believe me, every animal has a role and, and there would be parts of the food chain and, and animals that would be affected if, if mantas went away. Um, you know, because like, for instance, uh, when mantas die, they're big and they sink to the ground, unlike whales that float. Um, and of course, they're feeding entire ecosystems on the bottom of the ocean. But on a, on a big, broad scale, maybe you, wouldn't, maybe you wouldn't notice. But one of the things that I believe is in the ocean, just like on land, you need these iconic species, even if they don't play a huge role in the ecosystem per se, you need these guys to be champions for conservation. Because believe me, people don't go out to see, uh, you know, sea urchins and people don't go out to see, you know, little snails on seagrass. People connect with these um, charismatic, iconic animals. And so they play a huge role as an ambassador in in getting people connected to the ocean um, and, you know, making people want to care about, you know, these big causes. Um, and, and so I think that can be their role, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. And I, st I still feel we don't know enough to actually be able to determine fully what would happen if things like rhinos or mantas disappeared. I mean, the, the, the ecosystems are so complex. They're so but, complex. Yeah. There would be absolutely an impact, but it may not be as obvious or severe um, as the removal of something else. But that doesn't mean that there's not an impact. And the problem is, is nothing happens in isolation. So what we're seeing all over the world is a mass extinction event and, and all kinds of animals are going extinct. And what's going to happen is there's going to be an incredibly big problem when so many individual animal species are removed at once um, is definitely what we're going to see. Yeah. Andrea, lovely. Thank you very much. Uh, appreciate your time. I hope your dogs have um, uh, been comfortable there. Oh, have you frozen up? You have. Sorry, I'm back. Oh, you're back I'm again. Back. Well done. Well done. <laughs> well, look, um, thank you again. And um, good luck with all the future research. Thank you. Oh. It was nice chatting to you today. You too. Take care now. Bye. Bye.